<clears throat> you are charged with obstruction and conspiracy. Conspiracy to pervert the course of language and to limit the speed of creativity and language input, endangering billions with repetitive strain injury. QWERTY keyboard, how do you plead? Not gluty. Ah, I see. Oh, very well. A sampling of the depositions spells a very different story. The pain of the QWERTY keyboard obviously has not been great enough to entice people to try to learn something that would be better. I don't see it being superseded. It's so deeply embedded in virtually everything that's manufactured. It is not ergonomic. Astonishingly, QWERTY takes between 60 and 80 hours to actually get to 60 words per minute, and it actually has an 80% failure rate. Now, a pilot's license only takes about 45 hours to get and it has an 80% success rate. You know, it's easier to learn to fly a plane than it is to actually use a QWERTY keyboard. It was born in 1873, and it stayed with us ever since. If which, the Consumer Magazine, were around in 1873, how would we have rated the QWERTY keyboard? Well, at first glance, it seems utter madness, a jumble of letters that follows no convention whatsoever at all. It is illogical, and to be honest, if I was to reinvent it, there would be slight differences. There is a theory that QWERTY was actually designed. It came about purely to slow people down when they type. The views of a search engine expert, a historian, a consumer expert and a teacher, some of whom you'll hear later. Ladies and gentlemen of the Radio 4 audience, let us proceed by taking informal but expert testimony on the alleged faults of the layout of the standard typewriter keyboard or QWERTY, as we shall refer to the accused. It is highly likely that there is a keyboard near you to which you may refer during the proceedings. And we might call that Exhibit Q. Now to Marshgate Primary School in Richmond. Okay, children, if you log on to your computers for me and open your software, um, a little bit later on we will be introducing some new letters to the keyboards. Okay, but for now, if you can just carry on... I'm Zoe Clements and I'm from Marshgate Primary School. I'm a high-level teaching assistant and I teach touch typing to years 4, 5 and 6. That's 9 to 11-year-olds. If QWERTY is inherently inefficient, then Ms Clements and her ilk are, it is alleged, compounding the process, creating a new generation of QWERTists. I'm a firm believer that once the children can actually learn to read and use their first basic words, then I'm a firm believer that actually they can learn to type. <laughs> And this perkily ubiquitous anthem to QWERTY, composed by Leroy Anderson and conducted here by Sandy Toxvig and her light entertainment orchestra, is, in reality, the music of the oppressed. Well, first you didn't know where the keys were, so now it's really easy. Only like with the brackets and the dashes I look. We've got a child who's just turned seven, but when she was six, she can type up to 30 words per minute. Ever since I've done touch typing, I've got much faster. It makes English better because my spellings and I'm more confident. They're no stranger to the QWERTY keyboard. We teach them from very early age, from reception upwards, how to use the keyboard properly. When we first start, they are not allowed to see the keyboard. We have a cover, so they cannot actually see their hands. 
There are lots of games which help you learn how to do them faster. Games like Type Invaders, where you shoot things at aliens to get good accuracy and speed. I know lots of other people who've managed to get over 100 words per minute, which is really quite fast. It was something to do with the person who helped invent it or something. I think like the, his helper or someone was called something QWERTY. Was it the man who invented the QWERTY keyboard who called it QWERTY? My dad explained why the keyboard was like that. But to be honest, I wasn't really listening. If that boy had listened properly, and if his dad had known his onions, then he would have known that Mr Qwerty was Christopher Shoals, Milwaukee port official, Wisconsin senator, sometime newspaper editor, and a man who, in the mid-19th century, tried to invent not a typewriting machine, but the typewriting machine, and his first attempt at an interface was alphabetical. Call typewriter historian and enthusiast Nick Fisher of Swindon. It's logical to have it alphabetically. That makes absolute sense. But because the machine he developed was going to hopefully a commercial market, he had to produce a machine that works. And because the type bars clashed, uh, because of the keyboard arrangement, if it was actually put in an ABC uh, arrangement, he could not achieve that. So what he had to do was arrange those keys to make the machine work. If you look closely at the keyboard, you can see that there are links still with that organisation of the keyboard. But they are broken up according to the modifications he had to make in order to make his machine work. Scholz's first idea was for a system that emulated another alphabetically ordered keyboard. Pre-QWERTY, the only keyboards connected in any way with letters were gentler creations, pianofortes and their ilk, and they were designed to play more than one note at a time. The challenge was mechanical, to devise a system which linked an easily understandable interface with the complicated gubbins of ink, type, type bars, levers, springs, bells and whistles, the doodads that actually did the printing onto the paper. Nick Fisher again. This is where it gets complicated. Oh dear. The criteria for moving the keyboard was really based upon the layout of the type basket. The type basket looks like a crown, actually, is the closest description, I would say. Uh, very symmetrical. The type basket is comprised of uh, type bars, which are very much like, if you like, individual reeds, as if you'd woven a basket. A basket that moves, with each little reed moving individually. And at the end of each one of these reeds, there is a type a letter. Certain keys which were located in certain positions when struck uh, because of the mechanism of the typewriter basket would actually clash potentially. Oh. Because it's an upstrike model you'd have actually had to lift the roller, put your hand inside the type basket, manoeuvre your hand around the ribbon and push the keys back down into their position which is obviously a slightly messy job. Dirty Mr. Querty. So the challenge was to create a logical keyboard, one on which letters were grouped either alphabetically or in terms of frequency of use in conjunction with each other. The T, the H and the E, for example, all reasonably close together. 
But that grouping had to be connected to a mechanism where the frequent combinations of inky letters themselves had to be separated so they wouldn't clash and stick infuriatingly together. T and H separated under the bonnet, but conveniently close together on the dashboard, so to speak. A compromise. Nick Fisher. There was a compromise with regards to the mechanics of the machine, which actually creates an ongoing compromise between the user and the layout. By actually moving some of these letters away from each other in the type basket, it enabled the typewriter to work more efficiently. As Professor Koichi Yasuoka of the Institute for Research in Humanities at Kyoto University, Japan, explains, this compromise dictated a vowel movement. Shows moved vowels, A, E, I, O, U, Y, and the uh, first keyboard was made. George Harrington demanded shows to move letter I, uh, that is used for the number one, and letter I is moved near eight. So shows and Harrington can easily type write one eight seven O in the keyboard. That movement was made in eighteen seventy. Have a look, the I next to the eight. So you can to this day continue to write the date eighteen hundred something using the capital I as a one. So convenient. But in the 1870s, the idea of ergonomics or user interfaces or future-proofing had yet to be imagined. That bossy George Harrington there, who moved the T and the I, was, alongside Thomas Alva Edison, instrumental in the development of the printing telegraph. Telegraphers needed to share a new standard keyboard layout with typists, and they thought in a very different format. Morse code. So more keyboard compromises needed to avoid confusion. But Scholz's QWERTY was just one of a number of systems. The race was on to establish supremacy. Nineteenth-century competitive typewriting began to resemble today's motor racing. Publicity and brand awareness were all. Some of the early manufacturers actually used to have pools of competition typists who would use machines that had been souped up by their works department in order to achieve exotic, unimaginable speeds. They used to run them at vaudeville events, sometimes along roller racing on bicycles. They were thought to be quite entertaining, and I guess it gave a little bit of glamour to it. At that time, they used QWERTY keyboards and three or more type of other typewriter keyboards. So sometimes QWERTY operator won, and sometimes other keyboard operator won. You can imagine that at these competitions, where there were a number of typists competing for all sorts of levels of awards, that the noise these typewriters were making was quite amazing. As regards the upshot of these events, uh, they were good publicity tools for the manufacturers of the typewriters. It's actually difficult to tell, certainly, if it's the machine or the user who made the difference to the speed and efficiency that was attained. But in 1873, the Remington Company, with QWERTY on board, saw off the commercial competition. Remington originated in rifle and small arms manufacture and were very busy during the Civil War. When the Civil War ended, 
they had to turn their attention to more peaceable products. Initially, that was the sewing machine, then the typewriter. The very early Remington machines actually look more like sewing machines than typewriters. The association between armaments and typewriters and sewing machines and typewriters is the process of standardization in manufacture that had occurred during the even the early to mid part of the 19th century when uh, screws screw threads were standardized and the interchangeability of parts on a production line became so important the gauge of railways, the calibre of bullets, it was only natural that the typewriter became a part of this process in terms of standardisation. Professor Doran Swade is an authority on the history of computing. Uh, QWERTY's birth, Professor Swade, took place during the machine age and I suppose one of the keys of the machine age and a defining feature of it is the interchangeability of parts so you can make lots of units. Uh, yes and no. I think the issue of standardization and interchangeability of parts is really to do with the facility and ease with which uh, production can be facilitated. In other words, you can make lots of these quickly um, and repair them very quickly, unlike clocks and watches of the same period where parts were not interchangeable. But the issue of interchangeability is not really to do with the mechanization of handwriting, if you like. Mm -hmm. They're two separate issues. One was, how do you mechanize handwriting? Another question was, well, how do you make these machines very efficient to produce? And that is to say, a bolt made in London and a nut made in Manchester wouldn't necessarily fit because all the lead screws on the lathes were different. Yes. So sanitation was absolutely crucial for um, manufacturing things in parallel. And the issue of interchangeability in relation to um, language and QWERTY is actually, um, uh, metaphorically, is, is very profound because, in fact, there must be some respect in which our cognitive apparatus is the same in order for us to be intelligible to each other. Oh, that's rather pleasing. So the physical version of reproducing a machine to write is reflected in the wider sense, if, if it wants to call it wider, of our own minds and the way that they interoperate with other human beings and are standardized in our, in our sort of giving and exchanging of words. Absolutely. And the big lesson of QWERTY to some extent is the fact it was standard, not necessarily that it was the most efficient or the most ergonomically sound, um, but that it was standard. QWERTY, grandfather to the audio cassette, the VHS videotape, driving on the left rather than the right, all became standard through custom, practice, compromise and economics. There is a graver accusation. To wit, QWERTY was designed deliberately to slow down typists as a way of avoiding clashes. If true, it's an intentional spanner in the works of our language and an excellent excuse for me to dress up in this wig and gown to try crimes against not only English, but virtually every other European language, for almost all have adopted and adapted dirty Mr. QWERTY. Koichi Yasuoka is our expert witness on the development of QWERTY. So, is it true? Was this sabotage? No, it isn't true. It's false. TH is the most frequently used uh, letter pair in English. In fact, in Shaw's typewriter, the type bar of T and H, T and H are located on opposite sides. So, the separation of T and H at the business end of Scholz's machine was certainly made in the interests of speed. You could type TH without crashing, whereas the proximity of E and R under the bonnet, so to speak, was manifestly inefficient. Professor Yasuoka's research shows no apparent evidence of a deliberate slowing down. So, was it all 
a bodge, the whole story a lack of foresight saga. Fifty years later in the early 1930s, a time and motion expert from Seattle, August Dvorak, same family, different pronunciation, denounced QWERTY using empirical evidence. Ergonomics ruled OK. OK being interestingly close on the keyboard, but I digress. Arguably, Dvorak's new keyboard should have spelt curtains for QWERTY. I'm sitting with the Dvorak user Peter K and his keyboard. Would you say it's the most rational layout you've come across? In terms of something which radically improves on QWERTY and is reasonably practical, yes, I'd say it's a pretty rational uh, choice which is quite low effort to try out. And this is what the typewriter keyboard should have looked like from the beginning, you think, ergonomically? In an ideal world, yes. It, it would have been lovely to start out with Dvorak and uh, remove some of the issues of QWERTY, which, of which there are many. How long have you been using Dvorak? About 10 or 11 years at this stage. Uh, I started off using QWERTY as everyone does, finger pecking, moving on to touch typing. Uh, at one stage, using the internet and sort of things, I was introduced to the concept of the Dvorak keyboard. And seeing as you should generally question everything in life, I should give it a go and see what the advantages were. Now, suppose I was convinced by you, and of course you're a very convincing fellow, and decided that I wanted from now on to be a Dvorak user. How long do you think it would take me to overcome what is, frankly, I'm embarrassed to admit it, it's getting on for 40 years of pretty regular daily QWERTYs, because I used to use an electric typewriter and a manual typewriter as Absolutely. a boy. I loved typing. So it's imprinted in me. This really depends on how much free time you have. <laughs> if you had a couple of weeks where you could completely go cold turkey on QWERTY and move to Dvorak, then it would be an awful lot easier to switch. For myself, it took about a month. Dvorak tends to alternate hands. When you're typing, there's a much different rhythm of typing than there is using QWERTY. But the major advantage does have to be the ergonomics of it and the reduced key travel. Plus, when you actually use it, there's a different rhythm to using it because QWERTY has a lot of historical baggage. So it's a bit like in the days of the Second World War when supposedly you could recognize Morse code operators by the rhythm with, in which they tapped out their you, code. You should be able to notice somebody, whether they're QWERTY or Dvorak. I'm going to turn the keyboard around so it's facing you. Certainly. And I'm going to dictate so we can possibly hear this famous Dvorak rhythm. So my name is... Well, that's good. He's quick, isn't he? My name is Peter Kay, and I am using a Dvorak keyboard. You will note the steady, rhythmic pulsing of my fingers. Very good. It's, I mean, the speed at which it's coming out, it's clearly Im imprinted in your wetware, as we Indeed. call the brain. But now we must look to the well of the court for an alternative, whose accuracy and speed is judicially proven. Mary Soreen is an expert stenographer, keeper of a more mysterious set of keys, permutations of which are used to make words. There are 22 blank keys there, and the reason they're blank is because the keys actually represent the sounds. It's s-t-p-h-k-w-r, and the vowels up the lower down are with the left thumb, a and o, although it's actually a and o. But there are many more. We haven't, for instance, got an initial D, an initial B. We haven't an initial L. So we make those by combining two keys. The E and the U together actually forms the letter I, but with the sound of I, as in hit or pit. The long I 
is all of the vowels, A, O, E and U, all pressed down together. So if we have hit, we would just do H, I and final T. But if we want height, we would do H, long I, that's all the vowels, with the final T. So you're pressing a syllable at a time, as well as cording, it's syllabic. So you're pressing a syllable at a time. So because we speak in syllables, actually, and we take down in syllables. We stroke the keys. We are writing on the pupil, but we're stroking the keys. Yes, not quite like stroking the cat, but we are stroking. And we're not meant to be pounding when we stroke. It's a light stroke. And stenographers can achieve the speed of speech. 180 words a minute, they reckon, is the speed of speech. But I think everybody is speaking much faster these days. But 180 words a minute is three words every second. Which is why I say to people, if you are learning briefs and phrases, you really have to know them. A brief is a brief phrase, a, a brief outline. The letter S on the machine, which is used by the pinky, is actually the word is. That's the brief for the word is. Uh, K, can, R for the word A-R-E, W for with. The H and the R together, which later we learn will become the initial L, is the word will. Use them or lose them, because you do not have the luxury of time to, to sit and think, Oh, my goodness me, there was a brief for that. I know there was a brief for that. What is it? You've just lost 10 seconds. You've just lost 30 words, which you've now got to steno-like stink to catch up and try and get down. Oh, you've dropped it. So no jokes about taking down our briefs. <laughs> the advantage of the steno machine over the QWERTY keyboard is that because we are stroking in syllables, we can write much faster. A good stenographer will beat a QWERTY keyboard hands down any day. The reason to use a stenographer in court or anywhere that you want a verbatim record is the ability that that stenographer has to get down a verbatim record. Verbatim means word for word and it means every word. And in court, and especially in countries where you still have the death penalty, the hangman's noose could actually be reliant on one word. And if that word is dropped or misstroked, you've got somebody swinging from the gallows. So it's fast and accurate enough for the courts of law and for parliaments, but too demanding to learn compared with QWERTY, whose rivals continued to fall by the wayside. Shed not a tear for Diahensor, weep not for Quinky, mourn not Maltron or assert Azerty, and call Dan Dixon for an overview of current challenges. I am Dan Dixon. I'm a senior lecturer at the University of West of England, and I'm a researcher in the Digital Cultures Research Centre. Optimus Maximus. Optimus Maximus is a, a keyboard where the keys themselves have very small screens on them, so that, that way the, the keyboard can be configured to anything the user wants, and it doesn't even have to be letters or numbers on the keys, so you can have kind of your applications on your keys, you can fire up applications. Orbit Touch. Orbit Touch is a keyboard input device which uses two effectively knobs on it that you can turn. They're designed ergonomically, so they're comfortable to use. But it's what's known as a, a corded keyboard. Um, so you effectively you create letters on the screen by kind of the combinations of the, the positions that the, the orbit touches in. So the orbit touches a little bit like a stenography machine, but powered by knobs. One-handed underwater keyboards. Yeah, there's a diving keypad called the Wet PC, which is effectively sort of a one-handed diving keyboard for diving computers. That again, it's very similar to the Twiddler or any other corded keypad, and there's a, a set of buttons. What about voice recognition? Why not speak instead of type? The technology is good enough, isn't it? The biggest problem and the biggest drawback for voice recognition, say in the workplace or as a kind of way to replace um, 
text is the kind of the, the social problems really the workplace is not set up to deal with everybody talking away whether that be in open plan offices or on on railway carriages human computer interface research has shown recently that people actually like to think and type rather than think and speak that when people are given the option to speak they have a much harder time actually kind of organizing their thoughts but what about an interface which dispenses with both typing and speech it's back to the typing demons of Marshgate Primary School for the ultimate user interface. They've been putting their thinking caps on. If you put this thing on your head and it goes into the computer and you just think, maybe something, just think of what you want to write, what you want to appear on the page in text, you think it in your head and it will go onto the page. Yeah. It's like the thing you see you get in like science fiction films. Yeah, but that's not real. <laughs> Could it be real? Professor Doran Swade is an authority on the history of computing. We heard their children um, coming up with the, the marvellous fantasy, one we've probably all imagined, that of a literal thinking cap, of being able to turn language into a physical presence simply by thought. Is that a, a reality or a fantasy? In the privacy of consciousness, we can actually, what uh, epistemologists would call, apprehend the manifold. That is to say, we hear harmonic music, we can hear multiple voices, we can apprehend them, we can perceive them, we're aware they're there and we can actually register them. Um, when we look at uh, a landscape or a painting, we can apprehend simultaneously multiple features, many simultaneous features of this thing. The moment we need to express this publicly, for, if you like, intersubjective intelligibility, so that you can understand what I am saying. There is a necessary serialization. Words, both written and spoken, come in a sequence. Right. So, if you like, we're extruding this richness of simultaneous private consciousness through, if you like, the pinhole of language. So, the question is, is QWERTY good at doing this? Yeah. Firstly, intersubjectively, therefore, standardization, compatibility, um, uh, the fact that all the machines are the same and the layout is the same is important there yeah. uh, for the reasons we've discussed. Um, so is QWERTY effective in doing this? Um, and I think one would say QWERTY is hugely effective in doing this. So I think QWERTY, in a sense, has been given a very hard time. Yeah. Firstly, standardization, compatibility, the fact that all the machines are the same and the layout is the same is important there. And the yeah. fact that there are more efficient keyboards is a kind of marginal improvement. You say, yes, you can increase by 30%, you know, whatever it is. Um, but it's still in the category of keyboards, yeah. and you're still extruding um, language through a, a pinhole, a, a minute aperture of our perceptions to try and resynthesize, if you like, the richness of what was originally there. So, any system of language has to cross the gap between thought and word. Thus, all language is a compromise. And only now are we slowly learning to be technology's master, not servant. The fault, to paraphrase Shakespeare, is in ourselves that we are underlines. We must conclude that QWERTY is not guilty as charged. You may leave this court a free keyboard. Oh, go on, Sandy. Play it again. Fry's English Delight was presented by Stephen Fry and produced by Nick Baker. It was a testbed production for BBC Radio 4.